Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the third episode of Remember the First Time. Here with me, myself, Mark Rawson, we have Paul Force. Hi there. Charlotte Pearson. Hi. And joining us today, we've got a special guest in Dan Laver from The Vinyl Line. Hi, Dan. All right, how are you? I'm very, very well. Very, very well. How's everyone doing today? Yeah, good. Good. What's been happening? What has been happening? Uh, a lot of prep for this. That's yeah. what's been happening. <laughs> yeah, I've mainly been watching videos of Glastonbury 1994 on your instruction. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Good. Unlike Paul, the other day. So, uh, what, what's your thoughts on Glastonbury 1994? I've been pretty busy. I've not watched much yet. I was like, what? <laughs> I like, How dare I have my <laughs> I was feeling bad. I was loving it, though, as well. I was like, this is very Paul. I like it. <laughs> I didn't feel like I'd gone deep enough, but today I got as far as Chumbawamba, so I thought that was. Um... Oh yeah, we've we've been seeing. We saw L Seven literally. Mm-hmm. I'm sure people have heard of L Seven. I'm sure there's people that are listening like right now that are like, oh, I love L Seven. Never heard of them, mate. Never heard of them. <laughs> it was Mad Rose for me. I think it, I think they were called Mad Rose. Are you sure it was Mad Rose? Because I can't find them. Like something like Mad Rose. I'll tell you. As we're looking through, you'll even shout not, a name. Nadia Rose. No, not Nadia Rose. Well, you'll even shout. I mean, I don't want to disagree with you, mate, but it's Nadia Rose. Told then, aren't they? <laughs> I don't think it was there. Anyway, I'm going to shout to you later when I found who it was. Uh, who it actually was. So, uh, yeah, join us on Worthy Farm. We've taken a trip down to Pilton to... Uh... It was Madder Rose. I told you it was Madder Rose. There was another person called Nadia Rose that oh. was on a different year. Oh. Apologies. Well, we're very we'll much cut, looking at Glastonbury yeah, 94. We'll cut that out. No, we won't. I'm editing this time. <laughs> we're keeping it in. That'll get lost in the edit. Well, I know that the audio's corrupted. <laughs> You're corrupted. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, as you've probably gathered by now, we're uh, doing a special episode of Remember the First Time. It's that time of year. The rains are here in 2019, much as they are at this time of year. Every year, as we go down to celebrate Glastonbury. We're going to have a look at Glastonbury 1994, have a look at uh, the performances that we could find on YouTube. We obviously weren't there, or were we? We'll all find out shortly. And uh, yeah, give, us, give you our thoughts on the festival. I suppose how old were you? Glastonbury 94. 37. No, I was, I was 8 and 11 months, just shy of being 9. Charlotte? 3. Dan? That's really old. Um, I was I was nearly fourteen. So nearly I was, fourteen. I was quite conscious of what was happening. It was. Uh, you're you're allowed to down yourself back to thirteen. I'd say that's fine. That's Don't right. yourself too early. <laughs> you were thirteen. Yeah. You were young. Don't worry. No, about I think me. I think being yeah. nearly fourteen was important. Oh man, I think we're fine, mate. I've got pubes right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, uh, I, was, I was thirteen and five quarters. And a late developer. <laughs> Uh, I was nine. I was ten during the weekend of Glastonbury, so uh, the next episode I'll be able to say I was ten at the time. Wow. Uh, anyway, so yeah, we weren't at Glastonbury. Um, I think it's fair to say I wish I had uh, parents cool enough to have taken me to Glastonbury at that age. But Big Mick and uh, Vicky are not yeah. the Glastonbury types. Do you just think Big Mick and Vicky aren't cool? They are cool, but in a very different way. I've realised that as I've got older. But put it this way, I was telling my mum last time we were recording this, so I went, oh, Fuzz is coming over, we're recording the podcast. She went, what's a podcast? <laughs> so I don't think she'll be listening to this. It's like radio for young people, Mom. <laughs> yeah. What do we think of the lineup in as a whole? Do you think it's strong? Uh, I think I think in places it's really strong. In other places it seems a little bit 
dated uh, the Saint Etienne. I mean, of course, it's dated. <laughs> it's 25 years 20, ago. <laughs> no, but watching watching Saint Etienne, I don't want to be disparaging of them because I like Saint Etienne, but they don't have much stage presence and it feels quite behind the times. They don't feel necessarily as relevant as some of the other bands. But again, maybe that's just being able to look in retrospect and say, well, of course, you know, the next big sound was coming through. You're going to obviously focus on what you knew was coming rather than what was there at the time. Um, yeah, it was a fairly strong lineup. The biggest thing that I saw was actually the lack of bands there. It was mm. still felt quite small compared to what you would consider the vastness of Glastonbury nowadays. There's, so, there's a lot less stages then. There, there, there's much fewer stages then than they have now. That's what's my thought of looking at the poster mm. and uh, the lineup. But for me, it was like, yeah, the main stage is fantastic. It's got some big names on. But look at the NME stage. Obviously, now the NME stage is the other stage. But the NME stage, for me, incredible lineup. I think history sort of makes the yeah. lineup a lot more notable than it probably was at the time. Yeah. I mean, when you've got, I, mean I, I do remember watching it, and it's like, I was, I was a cool kid. I was like waiting for the blurs to come on. And, um, and the I had blurs. To, I had to, I had to sit <laughs> That's how cool I was. The I blurs, the oasis. <laughs> I'm there watching it, watching it on Channel 4 with the lights and that. And this, um, this, I had to sit through this old lad, um, just some old geezer who kept on coming on, and I'm like, well, what's, who's this? I don't, don't want to watch that. And in retrospect, that was Johnny Cash, and I wish I'd <laughs> paid a little bit more attention to it, sort of, uh, at, at 13 and three quarter years old. But no, I mean, it's just, it, I mean, it, it did at the time, for sort of, it was the NME stage, and it was the other acts that history has shown to be quite notable. And I think, no one would have guessed that at the time, because um, I think they didn't really know what was coming out. I mean, most of the bands that played hadn't had their biggest works. No. Yeah. No. Mm. no. I and mean, you've got Oasis on there. Oasis look like shy on there. They, I don't think it's a great performance. I think it's a great set, but I don't think it's a great performance because they haven't got their swaggy yet, I don't think, Oasis at that point. I just uh, think they can't be bothered to be there because they think they're bigger than Glastonbury. Mm. Like, they're better than it because they don't necessarily fit Glastonbury. Glastonbury's kind of like an arty thing and they're a working class band. I don't think they fit at that time. The year later, when the tide shifted a bit, I think they do fit there a lot more. Yeah, yeah. I agree with that. I think that exactly what you're saying, that they don't necessarily... The zeitgeist hasn't moved on to them. They're already Oasis at that point, even though they're playing so low down. They're newcomers. They are newcomers in 94. But they are are the sound of things to come, Mm -hmm. and... um, they're waiting for everyone else to catch up with them, which belays their arrogance, I suppose, and supports their arrogance. But I, I do feel like what, what Charlotte said, because they're from such strong working class roots, and Glastonbury historically has been so arty and has been so alternative. And to be fair, before it had mass appeal on television, it was still quite an isolated festival. You, unless you knew about the festival... You're not necessarily going to go out of your way to know about it. Mm. And it's the first time it's televised, I think. That yeah, if I'm right, if I'm it right. is. So I think that all these factors make uh, make Oasis seem atypical and seem out of place when, in actuality, they're just waiting for everyone else to catch up to them. And that's not to suggest that you know Oasis have reinvented the wheel. They were they were doing something that, in retrospect, was just you know pastiche to certain degrees of, of the Beatles. But they were waiting for everyone else to 
become what they already were. But that's why I enjoyed watching that so much because it was um, it was it's before they've really got the Oasis swag. Mm. Like you can, you can even I mean maybe it's just that he hadn't quite ravaged his voice with fags and booze so much. <laughs> that's <laughs> Liam's yeah. voice when he starts, especially when he starts the set. It's just it's, it's so much fresher and it hasn't got the same sneer to it. Mm. There's, there's hints of that. I mean, when the dude digs his diner, you can hear him sort of thrashing it out a little bit more and it's it's starting to come through. But it's um it's not it's not quite there yet. And I think yeah. that's really enjoyable to watch. I tell you what, it's a cracking set. It is an incredible set. It really, really is the Oasis set. Yeah, uh, yeah I've watched it a few times. To be honest, um, they're they performing Live Forever, but. Noel's not even doing the backing vocals, no. I think, on Live Forever. No. He doesn't do any backing vocals, I think. Oh, no, wait, he does, but he has to go over to Liam's mic mm. because they've still not kind of got that set up correct. They've not yet uh, refined their performance, like you say, because it's a really raw, young performance from a band that... I think this is the biggest stage that they've performed on and the biggest crowd that they've performed to at this point. Yeah. Like, it's... It's forty days, I think, until definitely maybe comes out. Yeah, it is sometime, yeah. as you'll find out in a, in an upcoming part. Um, but yeah, I yes. I agree. Uh, Liam's voice does sound ace, yes. and I love that. And the set is brilliant. The rest of the band, they look like they can't be bothered to be there. Genuinely, mm. no, maybe, but the other guys. No, well, it's not long until uh, Mr. Drummer goes missing, is it? It's great <laughs> to uh, it's great to hear him doing um, like uh, fade away. Yes. And, and like the early B sides, because you, you, I mean, they didn't have the tracks at that point. That's the other thing that you forget. They didn't have the sort of set list that they'd have a couple of years later. So it's amazing to hear them do something like that. Cause, and, and, they're, and they're doing it because that single's obviously been out. It's been yeah. the B side, and that's the ones people know. I, I love it when uh, they start playing cigarettes and alcohol, and the crowd. It's, it's obviously a track that the crowd know because yeah. the crowd go absolutely mm. mental for it. Mm. It's so good to see. <laughs> Lots of crowd surfing. Yeah. Which, as we mentioned earlier, it's got to be incredibly inconvenient at a festival. <laughs> having to go back down to the back of the crowd. It's not something I do. I don't, I don't think people could pick up my thigh, let alone the whole body of me. It's <laughs> <laughs> mainly a sort of thigh crowd. Surf, I'm, I'm, that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an immovable object. Once I'm, I'm, I'm like, you know how you get the flags that people find their guidance by? Like, oh, next to the peace flag, I'm next to the what? I'm next to, I'm next to Paul. He's not, he's not moving. <laughs> Okay, keeping on the enemy stage then, uh, we spoke about Oasis, obviously uh, much bigger at the time, we're talking at Blur, they're headlining, I think it's on the Sunday that they headline. Ah, uh, Blur don't headline, the second headliners. Oh, I've missed, I've got that completely wrong then. Yeah, it's, uh, it's Spiritualized at headlining, Blur right. have got the magic hour slot, they've got yes, the sun yeah. setting, they've got the crowd in front as the sun's coming down, sitting all that nice golden light on the other stage as it still does now. So yeah, it's Spiritualized at headlining, but Blur... I've got that wrong, but Blair, 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 Blair. Um, Blair are having the time of their lives on that stage. They are loving it, especially Damon and Alex. They are proper loving it and enjoying being there. Yeah, what was it that you were saying last night about they look like the pros? Mm. Yeah, yeah, they do. Like, out of everybody on that stage on that day, I think they look like the ones that they know what they're doing. They look, Yeah, they look like they've built up to that, don't they? Yeah, yeah. If they're, they're proving they themselves here, yeah. this is... Look at us. You've got a second headliner, but no, we're we're here to headline. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether there's someone behind. And the fact that you think that the headlining mm. proves just how much that performance sticks in your memory. Absolutely, it's 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 one of my favourites from the festival. Um, but yeah, it's, they are absolutely loving it on stage. I, I've got to mention him, Phil Daniels. You, you learn, <laughs> I knew you'd giggle at that. You learn 
in the last episode, how much I love Phil Daniels. Do you but love Phil Daniels? When he Mark? comes on stage, his <laughs> Hawaiian shirt and shorts, it looks like a dad at a party. He's probably about the same age that we are now, though. That's the thing. What do you then, think? Yeah, because they're yeah. probably mid-20s. He's yeah. probably early 30s. Yeah, I think you're probably about right. Yeah. What do you think Phil Daniels' greatest work is? Was it Quadrophenia or was it when he... Uh, done over the uh, car lot on EastEnders that was quite something <laughs> oh, <laughs> for me were the ones that sort of really stick in my mind from the timeline like so I, I literally changed my haircut because of this performance I remember I remember how good it looked like with um, with Damon's hair sort of all over his face now this is centre parting time let's let's go back so a forward comb was kind of pretty uh, pretty revelatory at the time um, and to just get that sort of sweaty look about it, I, I never pulled that off. I used far too much wet look hair gel. I'm gonna say, how did you get a sweaty of, look? How did you get a sweaty look? It was sort of, it's just too short, isn't it? Like, I mean, he did have good hair in that, you, like, in those days. I Surely. bet he used to have a bucket hat though as well. At that time, 14 well, we years old, it's the prime time to be wearing a bucket hat Wait. around the fashion. Oh, let me do a, let me do a quick like dip check into what your outfit was that summer. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm gonna say Adidas Gazelles. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Adidas Gazelles, I'm going to say maybe Levi 501s? No, I couldn't afford it proper jeans. Wranglers. But like Bush Bain, yeah, it was, it was... Joe Blogs. Do you know what? I think, I, <laughs> Joe Blogs. I, think I, was still, I was still in supermarket jeans. Fair enough, I can live with that. In 94. And could you afford the Adidas Classic with the uh, three-stripe piping on the shoulders? Uh, yeah, but I got it from a charity shop. Oh, well, fair enough. That <laughs> That's even better, though. Yeah. That is even better. So well no, done on finding We're not that. sure if you've got the bucket hat so if you haven't got the bucket hat have you got some john lennon sunglasses oh yeah absolutely oh, yeah <laughs> round, round sunglasses Rose in red Rose yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> oh, so that was, um, three for three i'm happy with that <laughs> do you know what i went i went to see um liam gallagher last year and we bought like round shades just for the hell of that just to just have a complete trip back in time but no it was like so yeah i mean it, it, it was a massive deal to be able to sort of see him and it was um because like, I mean, basically at that time as well on t- t- music TV there was um, the chart show, um, Top of the Pops, and then Glastonbury for the first year, bringing sort of like a lot more music to the masses. So the fact that it was broadcasting, mm-hmm. I mean, you can tell as well that they've got a load of the word presenters doing it. So yeah. it's, uh, it's a little bit more edgy, and it's a little bit. I mean, we had to stay really late to watch this. This was well past bedtime. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're not going to be showing it live, are they? No, especially not with the lyrics day, of the Man yeah. Street Preachers. Katie, it, yeah, I looked up who the presenter was. She did my head in, if I'm honest. Katie Putgrave. <laughs> Katie yeah. Putgrave. Yeah. I was like, she's honestly some of the things I was watching. I was like, she is definitely smashed. I don't know what she's on. But she is smashed. Purportedly. Suggestively. Okay. Alleged. Well, I am alleging. <laughs> no, you are, you are suggesting. Yeah, I'm suggesting. Yeah. That, that super there, is, there is no evidence to imply explicitly that she Apart from what was seen on camera. <laughs> and, and, and Keith Allen saying that he's literally going off to buy drugs. Yeah, <laughs> Keith Allen, when he uh, when he gets the, um, the nachos, did you see that? No, I didn't spot that part. Okay, okay. There's a really interesting part where Keith Allen comes on. He goes, I don't know why, he gets some money from Mark and Lars. To go buy drugs. To, to go and buy a hat. <laughs> It's definitely not just the hat he goes and buys though. But he also at some point he goes he's talking around how like um, varied the festival is and how it's not bad value if you're getting some food while you're there and he buys these I think it's um I think it's a chili and some nachos and then just gives them to this guy in like a crowd and he's like, Do you want these? And this guy's like you can tell he does not want them. <laughs> but he's like, Oh my god, I'm being filmed on telly. Yes, I'll take them. He's like, How good is that? And he's going, Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> It's you know really strange. 
great great TV though. <laughs> so what, what confuses me about Keith Allen is what has he ever actually done? Because I'm aware he was in a shallow grave, and I think that's it. Mm. And that even that in motion video about three or four <laughs> years later. I think he was just kind of around. Was that a personality? Was a socialite. Yeah, yeah, I think he's, he was a London socialite. I think mm. that's probably probably the most appropriate thing to say. He probably just in, hung uh, out at the Gaucho. He was in Robin Hood in like the mid to early 2000s. Like. What did he? Oh, I yeah, missed yeah. that. Which Robin Hood? Which one? The Kevin Costner one? No, oh, no, no not the show. TV show. Did he play the sheriff? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes, you're right. Yeah. That's about all that. I know him from, because I was about 13. Yeah. <laughs> so I watched that. I do know that. Not all relating to what Right, I've got a question. Someone brought this up with me quite recently so they were talking around like where you grew up and that and i was like oh works off like mm. and they go oh probably nothing made marion i'm like oh my god when i went to uni people used to say that to me yeah work that the only like reference they have to works up is the that tv show yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that tv yeah. show you and you made marion and Marion met yeah that's, yeah, that's, yeah, what, that's it, it that's yeah. what we're talking about yeah the so that's done in works off yeah. That's all I set in works It's not changed, has it? No, <laughs> it's not. It's not. When I go back to see my mum and dad, it's not changed that much. Yeah, but their mud hut looks a lot better than <laughs> <about> that extension. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. But anyway, yeah, Keith Allen. He's done nothing since. Since. <laughs> <laughs> Made Marion and a Merry Men. We're making a lot of friends this episode, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> but no, the whole people have worked yeah, so yeah. <laughs> But yeah, um, as you mentioned, Dan, yeah, 94 was the first year that. Channel 4, any TV channel had uh, broadcast Glastonbury. And I think that made it suddenly more accessible to the vast majority of people. Um, you say that was the first time that you saw it. Uh, did you know about Glastonbury before then? No, I don't think so. so I mean, we, we'd made the effort to watch it. It was like, it was a big deal. Cause we were hooked on blur and it was like, we wanted to see these new bands. It was becoming, I mean, this is what I think why it sits in my mind so heavily is this is the year that everything was happening so it's like you found the new bands through through the Glastonbury broadcast that year it was the first time that I was ever aware of Pulp mm. um, so I'd never heard of them I was like who's this nut job like doing all these silly hand movements and that um, <laughs> it's now perhaps my favourite person in the world ever Jarvis <laughs> Cocker um, so yeah it was it was kind of revelatory that these bands were getting shown on TV like that, that they were there that they were visible um, and that really, the it was before everything kicked off. I mean, the radio headset is fantastic, but this is before the Bents. This is mm. before they produced like really their most notable work. Um, the Manic Street Preachers. I look at them now, and I mean, their headwear was a little bit more controversial because I don't think <laughs> I don't think balaclavas have ever been a good look for anyone. I mean, no. especially not in the 1990s because the IRA was still around then. Yeah. So yeah. Like that, I mean, that's a statement coming straight away. Um, they're a band that I think were were a little bit too much for me. I mean, I think they were a bit too much for Glastonbury that year as well. Mm. Well, There's a famous quote from Mitch, isn't it? That it's actually on one of the clips that I've seen where he says, "Oh, they should build a bypass through this place." Or it's something like that. It's mm. a famous quote from Mitch. Yeah, yeah uh, no, from um, Nicky Wise. Sorry, Nicky, not from, yeah. not from Mitch. From Nicky Wise, and they should, oh, they should uh, build a bypass over this place. Something like that. I'm paraphrasing there, but. When I heard that, I was like, oh, I've heard about this quote before. And then I was looking into it. There's a, I found this really like interesting article from about 2007 on the NME. It's basically just Nicky Wiseman defending that quote and saying, oh, I was only joking. And it's like, well, I think that's clear. I don't actually think that you thought, oh, they, they should get rid of Glastonbury and just build a bypass over these fields. Why, why is that even news 13 years later? 
Weirdly, though, there's a thing in the enemy actually really recently where Nicky Wise literally saying, I remember it vividly because we were grumpy and grouchy. Mm. They were on the edge of falling apart. Mm. And he's literally saying, I wonder how we could be so angry about nothing. It just felt like they were angry young men with yeah. something to prove. Which but is they, why they were good. Which is why, yeah, yeah I'm going to say, but what a performance. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I really enjoyed that manic, perform- that, that manic performance. Did you think it helped, going back to seeing Pulp, seeing Oasis, seeing uh, Manic Street Preachers, did you think it helped hearing regional accents being in such uh, a, a, a big stage uh, that kind of helped you feel like, Actually, this is something that connects with me more. I mean, I don't, I don't think I recognised Jarvis Cocker as being from Sheffield at that time because there's certainly no one else that I knocked around with that looked like him. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, it, it certainly opened up. I mean, when you look at the bands that, well, I suppose with history again, are, are the ones that stand out. It's the northern bands, really. I mean, mm. Blur, obviously not, but Oasis are sort of popping up. Um, Pulp have got a good showing, um, and then yeah, like the Levellers. Um, the Manics, it's, it's, it's a whole, it's a festival for a whole country for the first time. Mm. Um, I mean, you wouldn't know that from watching the news report because I've never seen so many middle class snobs of life um, <laughs> popping up. Um, but it's, it is, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it certainly felt like there was something really happening in the country at that time. And that's the vibe that I remember from it. This is why I think the fact that it was on, on TV, that Oasis, Pulp, Manics, all these regional accents were suddenly represented and represented at a festival and especially again because they were working class people it suddenly made it accessible for working classes and especially working class men to go i can go to that that's for me it's not this weird unknown artistic yeah. venture that i don't know about it's just a big party why why working class men can i just ask i just think because of, of oasis it was it, it was oasis kind of represented a lot of working class white men and i think for them it stopped it being about, you know, their uh, their entertainment was going out and getting drunk and going to football, as well as it suddenly meant that you could go to gigs as well, you could go to festivals. I think a lot of the festival culture had been artistic it's, and had been more... Yeah, it sort of cast the net wider, you say. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, yeah, I'm not trying to say it's only for mm. working class people. What I'm saying is it, it opens it's up... It's a pop movement, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. It's bringing everyone yeah. into but it's not But it's not just Britpop. The, I mean, you've got... you. You've got Orbital headlining on uh, the Saturday night on the other, on the other stage, on the enemy stage. I know that kind of, for Charlotte, you, you were saying to me, outside of this, how much do you think that influenced uh, what happened in music and what happened at the festival? Yeah, well, for me, like Orbital set, I think it kind of opens up the way for other acts um, from the dance music scene to actually start to think that they can play festivals and not just play like illegal field raves or underground raves like and they've bands and artists that follow such as like Chemical Brothers, Daft Punk, Basement Jacks, even Disclosure now have gone hey I can do that as well I can go and play a festival I can play a live performance to that and it's sort of allowed dance music to get to the mainstream but at that time, as the Public Disturbances Act, or whatever it was called, was about to come into force, kind of, if Orbital hadn't have played that set, what would have happened to dance music? Mm-hmm. Like, would it have carried on? Would it have got to the level that it did get? I don't know. Like, do you, do you think that performance helped to bring along, say, the dance stage to the festival? I think so. I mean, there's a quote in the Glastonbury book that Paul's got after 
Haskins. We'll put, a, we'll put a link in the podcast yeah. description to the book. Yeah, and it's from Tom Rollins from the Chemical Brothers speaking about Orbital set, and he says that they weren't known as Glastonbury as punted in night three and night four, and Orbital were playing on the second stage. It was the most amazing night, and it was the first time that a dance band was allowed to finish off the show. Live techno, outdoors, is the most brilliant experience. Dancing under the stars with music wafting around the open air. After we'd experienced that, it was a real thrill to be invited to play ourselves. So I think that helped them to go on Chemical Brothers, Daft Punk, Prodigy, Disclosure. I think it kind of opened up the doors, and I think that was kind of a big moment. Not just the there was the Britpop big moment, but there was that dance big moment, which I think has kind of maybe been lost a little bit, been forgotten about. Mm. I don't know. And you interviewed a lady called Jessica Joy quite specifically about this, didn't you? Yeah. So who's Jessica Joy? So Jessica Joy was a raver, a DJ, and she also worked at music stores in the 90s. And she actually DJed at Glastonbury in 94, around, she thinks it was. Um, and Let's say it definitely was. <laughs> Let's say it that definitely was. That was a probably dancing team. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fair to say she can't remember what year it was in. She was having a good time. It yeah. was that year. Yeah. <laughs> and she's got some great stories from Glastonbury, especially one that involves Michael Evis. So definitely listen to that one. Fantastic. So throughout the most of the 90s, you were a DJ. So what was that like? And what was it like being a female DJ in the 90s as well? Yeah, it was it was it was good fun being a DJ. I, it, I fell into it by accident. So I was working in this record shop and a friend of mine said, you're bringing home all these really great records. You shouldn't be keeping them to yourself. You should come out and play them. And he set up a little night in this cafe, Dokes Cafe. Uh, so I just sort of learned on the on the on the job sort of thing. So at that point I was playing, yeah, um, it was sort of right at the beginning of Mary J. Blige and all that kind of era. Um, and then I got given some gigs at the Blue Mountain Club, which is still going in Bristol, just about, um, and the Thekler and other kind of iconic Bristol clubs. Uh, and it was a lot of fun. The promoters were all like I, I worked, I DJed for a guy called Malcolm, who now runs a big area at Glastonbury Festival, and he was always really good. Had loads of female DJs and always treated us really well. So I never suffered in that respect. But you did, I did always get these sort of blokes coming up, going, "Oh, are those your boyfriend's records?" and things like that. And you kind of just ignore them <laughs> until they went away yeah it's a bit infuriating isn't it <laughs> yeah but it's always like a male seen as a male dominated scene yeah but there was quite a little um group of us myself queen bee she was resident at the the, the same night called chocolate city um there was near the tough cookies there was quite a few of us um female djs in fact malcolm used to do a night called female funky fresh uh, which was, yeah, always a really good fun. Um, you said that you played Glastonbury before. Um, what year did you play there and what was it like to play there? Well, you know, I, I can't swear what year I played there. I know I first went in, I think it was 92. Um, and when I played there it was probably around 94, 95. So um, I used to occasionally DJ in the backstage bar, but that was, but there was one time when Malcolm, who ran ran the dance 
dance tent as it was then before it became the dance village in silver haze there was just one really big dance tent which held about five thousand people and he came up and said uh, have you got your records and i said yeah they're in, in the back of my car and he went ah well with the next acts held up at the gate can you get on the stage and play something until they turn up so I went over to the stage and it was full of about, you know, 4,000 ravers all going nuts. <laughs> so I played there for about an hour, which was just amazing, really immense. I can usually remember a Glastonbury by all the acts that I missed because I was sort of, you know, at the opposite side of the field, you know, drinking cider or something. You know, it's just... Um, I could I could list a, a, a huge number of musical heroes that I've failed to see at Glastonbury. I mean, the more mainstream stuff was not what was necessarily rocking my world at that time. I was always much more into what was going on on what was called then the jazz world stage and in the dance tent and things like that. Um, okay, looking at the jazz world stage, there's Colleen Anderson, US3, the Sandals, FFF, cool. Don't know if you remember seeing yeah, any. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Us three and uh, Carleen Anderson. I loved Carleen Anderson. Yeah, I was very much into um, yeah Dorado Records and Cooking Vinyl and the sort of real funk stuff. There was a good sort of British jazz funk scene that was going on. Galliano and people like that. So I was I was I was into all that stuff as well. I just wish I could remember, like, say more specifically about a particular Glastonbury because, um, uh, like I say, they sort of all blend into one a bit. Um, I paid for a ticket the first year I went to Glastonbury and I've never paid to get in since, despite having been probably about another 12 times. So I've always managed either a blag or a, you know, there was a lot of sneaking in in the early days and... Uh, one of one of my friends once hid inside like a, a tree for, for the theatre tent, and another time we, you know, had a mattress and like slid four people underneath, and yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and that one of those was probably at ninety four, but I can't remember exactly. <laughs> that sounds like stories to be honest yeah yeah i felt at the time i was like i'm sure we could write a book about ways people have snuck into glastonbury and there's so many people who'd kind of gone through a hole that someone had dug over or climbed over a ladder or uh you know there was one girl who uh was trying to jump the fence this is back you know when you could jump the fence in, in on crutches and somebody came along in a in a buggy and went yeah you shouldn't be doing that in your crutches i'll give you a lift in and it was michael evis <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Well, I hope to uh, read that book one day because it sounds pretty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you want any more of that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I should get my old diaries out and probably find lots of things I've half forgotten. <laughs> Great interview there from Jessica, loving the fact that she, uh, one of her friends, has helped into uh, the festival by Evis himself, who cares about buying tickets. So uh, looking at, obviously, none of us may have been at the festival, but I know we've been vividly, uh, viciously watching clips from YouTube of the festival. What are your favourite performances? Charlotte? I think mine has to be Orbital, as yeah. I said before i just think it kind of vindicates the dance music scene and sort of pushes it to that next level so, yeah. i agree i think that's a brilliant performance yeah uh it's not my favorite uh i 
really like Beastie Boys. I think it's kind of endearingly ramshackle. Like ramshackle's the word for that on this bit, so they're tripping up over yeah. there. Yeah, <laughs> they just seem like superbly excited to be there, but kind of like puppies. They just don't know what to do. They're just really happy that they're there. And like people forget because everyone goes, like, oh my god, wasn't it amazing if Beastie Boys played? They played. They played in '94, but it was on the other stage and it was a tiny stage, but. Mm. They finished the set on Sabotage, and it's brilliant. And it is, it's ramshackle, but... Sabotage is incredible. It's a really good kind of punky garage band ethos. And, I yeah, I think it's just very endearing. I like it. Yeah, I agree, I love it. Mine is, we've mentioned it already, mine, Manix. I think it's just, as we said before, just poor angry young men just taking uh, their angst out on a stage. It's exactly what you want to see, the sunset. They're going mad. Yes, I might not love the fact that they're uh, performing performing in balaclavas at times. Maybe a bit too much. And I also think James Dean Bradfield's haircut at that point is a little bit dodge. <laughs> oh, man, I'm, t- I'm totally with you. It's like that's that's to me that that's the manics as they needed to exist. Um, I hate dad rock manics. <laughs> like, they broke my heart when they did that. Um, and it's, it's it's so good to see him like with so much passion and um, occasionally now they pretend to have it but at the time it was real see I kind of disagree with how they pretend to have it now now you don't get me wrong they are very much dad rock now but they have like the odd ace track in it International Blue off the last album brilliant love mm-hmm. it but live I'm not kidding they are just as energetic on oh. stage now they are uh, they are Ace James Dean Bradfield is such a good frontman oh. and one of the best people I've seen live. But I just love them at Glasgow. I'm very much looking forward to seeing the Manics this year. Um, but yeah, if they play anything from the last sort of five albums, then I'll be disinterested <laughs> at that point. <laughs> um, I, I think for me, it's, it was it's just all about the indie for me, man. It's like I just I, just, I remember I remember it so vividly. The, the, um, seeing Blur first time I became aware of sort of bands like Oasis and Pulp. Um, changed my life and I think I did mention sort of off air that it's 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 so refreshing to see these bands before they got big if you look if you look at the yes. performances from the year after so the pulp performance from the year after it's Jarvis Cocker as you remember him it's like the TV's Jarvis Cocker um, with the side part in sort of carefully sculpted over his mm. angular face um, the, the 94 performance they were still pretty raw mm. um, yeah. and I think it's it's amazing to see that being formed and that sort of coming life I also quite enjoy watching Rage Against the Machine yeah, um, yeah although I do still have an issue with any white person with dreadlocks yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah but so you mentioned um, Paul talking about Paul there's a, a quote when he's talking to the crowd and he's saying uh, it's something along he's like say, basically saying he's talking around his uh, journey at Glastonbury that year and he was just saying always be impractical and he's advising people um, to always be impractical and I'm like that is just you, Jarvis. You are impractical. And he's still at that point where he's just like, he's, I, I love Jarvis, but I know what you mean. There's TV Jarvis and there's real Jarvis. Yeah. And that real Jarvis is just brilliant on stage. He's so just interesting to watch because he isn't anything like anybody expected. He's really charismatic. He and is. I think that, I agree completely with what you're saying, Dan. I think the 94 performance by the whole band is lifted by... Jarvis and his charisma, but I don't think it's a very good performance. The band, it's a, it's a bit ramshackle at times. It's not as tight as it could be. And then the following year, they've really refined who they are. They're still a bit art house rather than being a bit more anthemic, I think. But, you know, I, that's just 
having the confidence to play a big stage, and that was probably one of the biggest stages that they played at that point in their career. And they were still on the up. It, this wasn't like them peaking. This was them continuing to climb the mountains, mm, as it were. Definitely, definitely. So that's our favourite performances. We've had a phenomenal response um, on social media from uh, people who were either at the festival or remember the festival. Charlotte, can you tell us about some of those? Yes, I can. So we've had, like you just said, a lot of people getting in touch with us about the festival and their memories. So we've had Disco Joe One saying that she was there but she missed Bjork because she fell asleep in her tent because she had jet lag. Who, Bjork or Disco Joanne? Maybe both. (laughs) (laughs) Bjork's performance is great. There's only a few tracks on there, I think, from what I've found anyway Mm -hmm. on YouTube. But her performance is great. She's mad. I don't don't know if she played Play Dead. It it had been released at that point. Mm. I don't know if she played Play Dead. And maybe, you know, listeners can let us know or if they've got any evidence of it. But I love Play Dead, it's one of my favourite tracks. And, you know, yeah, I can, can totally get why people would want to see her. Okay, another one from I Am Fleece, who said it was his second Glastow. This year will be number 23. Um, and they can remember bits of it, such as Oasis on the Enemy stage mid afternoon and the club night that he worked for had Danny Rampling and Mark Moore playing the big issue tent in one of the marketplaces. Pretty sure he got some bootleg tapes of Oasis's set as well. Nice. That sounds nice. Uh, we've also had at Will James, who said Radiohead pre the Benz, Nicky Wire getting booed, Beastie Boys in orange jumpsuits, the Slam for Rage Against the Machine in bracket insane, Damon Albarn climbing the other stage rigging, Johnny Cash levelers, Censor. What a lineup. Censor, you know, I'd never really listened to Censor before doing mm-hmm. research for this. They were interesting. Yeah. I quite enjoyed their uh, performances. I've been listening to them a little bit since as well. A band that just weren't in my head at all. Then. They were all yeah. right. I quite like them. Is, a, is that guy the chap that also um, found a friend that had lost their uh, lip piercing or ear piercing? Eyebrow piercing? There's... There's one guy that talks about how they, they found a friend that had oh, slammed. yes. So this is Steve, and he says that after losing his friends and tent for three hours after the levelers, I finally found the tent, and my friend opened it, and I asked who it was. He replied, moi. If I wasn't so exhausted, I'd have been arrested for murder that night. <laughs> and he follows it up with that he spoke to someone about his eyebrow piercings before Rage Against the Machine came on, and he saw him after... And his had been ripped out. Luckily, though, he's six foot five, so his eyebrow piercing was fine. But still, nasty. Yeah. <laughs> no one wants that when you go into a crowd. I, I love that people <laughs> think that uh, Glastonbury is maybe now more so. It, it's it's less metal than what it used to be. Although saying that, this year it's got its own metal stage. And is it? Yeah, it's got its I own metal stage. That. And Jamie Lennon, who used to be in the band Ruben, who's now his own really well-established and respected artist, he's like one of the guys playing that. And there's some real heavy stuff on this year at Glastonbury. Um, there's also the Killers, though, which are well, for everyone. Yeah, well, so there you go. You've got, you, you got your niche and you've got your wide. But like everyone always thinks that Glastonbury's this indie, uh, quiet, middle-of-the-road festival in terms of some of the acts that play. But then you've got Rage and Tool on the same stage, almost back-to-back. And then, like, the lead singer of Tool comes on and 
performs with Rage, and then there's this massive slam, and you say it's brilliant. Yeah, That's, yeah, that, yeah. I, I want that. And yeah, okay, everyone thought it was some sort of brand new thing when Metallica headlined, but there's always been this kind of heavier presence. And even with some of the punkish bands that play lower down the bill, like L7 played, and they're like a real kind of riot girl grungy act, and they they they're not necessarily someone I'd go out my way to see, but I really like the fact that there's that heavier sound there. Mm, definitely. Yeah. I love, in that Rage set, I love Know Your Enemy. Fantastic song anyway, but that performance in that set yeah. is yeah. so good. So one I couldn't find any uh, videos of on the on, on the YouTube, she was Apache Indian. I don't know if anyone else remember Apache I Indian. I do know the name. I think I've heard the name, but I don't remember I'll that. be honest, I was surprised Apache Indian was playing Glastonbury. He's okay. not, a, uh, not an act that I would have associated Why's with. Why's that? <laughs> No, yeah, surprised by that one. One, one of the things talk about, one of the things that surprised me, not about who wasn't playing, but who, what stages people were on. So I'm really surprised that like Levelers headlining the main stage at Glastonbury. That's mm. quite a. I just want to expect that. But then even further down the bill as well, there's um, some clips of Lemonhead. If you look at, they would have suited the other um, enemy stage. So well mm. on that lineup, Lemonhead would, but yeah, they're there on the main stage. Incredible. I think we forget though, in the early nineties, especially pre-Britpop, when it was uh, this kind of uh, eco-warrior vibe that Glastonbury had, you know, with uh, with the travelling community, which the Levelers are so yeah, heavily true, associated true. with. There's a real kind of synergy. There's a real, it's it's the right thing for Levelers to headline at that period. I think. Who else, who else, anyway? Yeah, what else are they saying? So, at the Brook, so said that he was there. He saw Rage Against the Machine. He was in the mosh pit and had to crawl out. He saw Blur, Radiohead, and L7. But it's the bands and artists that he didn't see that he regrets. Uh, but for him, the lineup of the Legacy and the new wave in 94 can never be bettered. Mm, I wonder who he didn't see. Probably a band that weren't there. <laughs> Probably a Pasha Indian. A Pasha Indian. <laughs> no one's mentioned the Spin Doctors either, are they? <laughs> well, two right. Princes. I watched Two Princes on the clips that I saw. That was like a Disney film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of love for James as well, actually. Yeah, yeah. Dare Set is good. I think some guy, someone was talking about that on the social as well, weren't they? James are a great yeah. uh, best of band. I love their best of. They really annoy me. Um, when they play live now, though, that they don't play the hits really anymore. Mm. We, we saw McGlastonbury a few years ago. Do the hits! <laughs> yeah! Play the famous one! Not just that, but you want some in there, especially at a festival. If you go to their gig, yes, they're going to play the, all the latest stuff to promote it. Obviously, they are. But when they're at a festival, people want to see the best stuff. People want to see the hits. They don't just want the B sides and the. I tell you what, what I'd love to know. What was the thing about Weller at the time? Because, like, this was before the resurgence, really, wasn't it? Yeah, so this well, is like it's about the time, just after Wildwood, isn't it? So Wildwood's 93. So I think it's just, just after the resurgence is starting, really. Because, again, he's, he's an artist that I couldn't find many videos of. There's not much content about it, but it's, were they not paying attention to Weller at the time? Was, was he not recorded properly? Did they just not bother filming it? Yeah. Maybe not. performance that I'd love to see historically. Well, have a proper look in YouTube. There is an incredible, I wanted to bring this up, there is an incredible video on in YouTube, right? And it's, I have so much respect for this guy. If you think nowadays, it's 
it annoys the hell out of me when people stand there just filming a set on their phone. Yeah. But it's nice and easy for the user to do that. They've got a small smartphone to hold. I'm not kidding. There is about a 40-minute performance from Paul Weller that is shot from the crowd. Think about technology in 1994, right? <laughs> That's got to be a video camera, and that video camera has to be of a notable size, right? <laughs> Full respect to this guy for one for taking the thing there, two for standing there for forty minutes. <laughs> that guy is going to be built on one arm. He's been practicing something to get that strong. You're assuming that he's got his arm up in it. What if he's just really tall and he's just on his shoulder? Potentially, yeah. He might be like a basketball player. Honestly, though, check it out. He he says in the in the description about the video on YouTube, he's like. Yeah, it's not very good footage because it's just crab from us, but it is what it is. Watch <laughs> it. It's great footage. It really is. <laughs> so, well, um, speaking of people going to the festival, we've got another interview. Tell us about who we've got. This is an interview from a guy called John Bowman. 94 was his first and only Glastonbury. Uh, and it's him talking about his experience of wanting to be there. He didn't necessarily go looking for any particular bands. But he's got some fantastic images that he's posted online recently that we'll link to from uh, the social pages. And the thing that stands out for me is just how much he wants to get back to uh, the festival. It, it was my first Glastonbury and my only Glastonbury. So 94, uh, actually, I think it was just a question that uh, a group of uh, friends, so my girlfriend, uh, her sister, her her boyfriend and a couple of other friends just decided to go that year because... Uh, a couple of them had been the year before and said it was great. So we thought, oh, let's all go. Um, so 59 quid a ticket, went down to uh, Virgin Megastore on Oxford Street in London. Uh, you could just buy them over the counter. I can't remember there being any rush for tickets whatsoever. So it was pretty easy, really. So four of us ended up going down in this uh, Peugeot 205, which is a pretty small car, actually. And yeah. um, with all our stuff in the back and and turned up then. Uh so I haven't been since. Uh, so really, 94 is the only one I went to. So, yeah, you say you say it was your first and your last experience. Did yeah. you go looking to uh, see any particular artist? No, no, no one in particular. It, it was a bit weird, really, because, uh, I mean, I, I was relatively old, I think, by the time I went. I was 27 at the time. So I'd always wanted to go to a festival because I'd, um, I'd, I remember when Channel 4 first showed Woodstock, I what. I put it on VHS and watched it about 30 times, I think, all the way from start to finish. And uh, uh, so, you know, I was all, always had the idea that was the experience, like that film was, uh, rather than run the mm-hmm. bands. And I can't even remember whether they'd really announced the lineup by the time we got the tickets. Uh, so we bought them a, a while in advance. Um, but at that particular point, the kind of Britpop explosion was happening. So I think when they scheduled the acts, uh, they put them on enemy stage which was the second stage at the time but uh you know obviously once we got there you couldn't get anywhere near them unless you you know spent all day in that particular stage all right so it was a case of you're either there and that's it you're there or you basically have to find i suppose other entertainment which i suppose isn't too difficult at glastonbury but if you're not there early in the morning to watch say oasis yeah that's it you're not getting anywhere near the well exactly and i think um 
well, it's interesting because uh, you know, through the magic of Wikipedia, plus I've also got the original program still, which cost a fiver. Uh, I see that the the Sunday seemed to be the Britpop day because uh, all those spiritualized uh, headlines on the enemy on the Sunday, then they had Blur, who who everyone wanted to see, and we couldn't get anywhere near that stage whatsoever. Uh, and then Radiohead, who obviously weren't Britpop, but. Uh, Funnily yeah. enough, the the next band down, I did see at that stage, which was the Inspiral Carpets. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, but you know, they felt like a throwback to a previous era, really, because they were, you know, Manchester baggy, you know, whatever else it was called, yeah, and uh, you know, as good as they were, um, I felt a bit, you know, they they were like from a previous era, really. It, it was amazing in those times because it felt like the 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 sort of scenes were changing rapidly because. Britpop came out of nowhere, really. You had Baggy before grunge was still around. Uh, what I find quite impressive is actually on the Friday on the NME stage, you've got two. Well, I, I had no idea. Well, I'd never heard of them at the time. And I saw that lineup. I thought, Tool, my goodness, you know, because, you know, obviously they're a big band in their own right now. Um, yeah. But uh, it's interesting because looking at the various stages, uh, I could see that we did a fair bit of wandering and it was always a quite a long walk between each of the stages well i was gonna say who, who did you discover what's what sort of your, your discoveries from that year um, that you weren't well, expecting to end up seeing yeah well i i would say on the friday night the uh manic street preachers who obviously they're i'd heard of and they're, they're quite big around the time but they they really they felt like a proper rock band and uh, there, there's some clips on YouTube from that set actually and they're absolutely outstanding and uh, they're very angry at the time as well. Um, mm. So James Dean Bradfield was wearing a sort of IRA balaclava on stage and uh, Richie was still in the band at the time, you know, yeah. and um, and the whole festival had this sort of kind of eco vibe, uh, but it was a bit of controversy because the levelers who are headlining the pyramid on the Friday would I was looking at the program and they they were saying why they pulled out the previous year or something because Michael Levis had decided that the travelers couldn't come anymore so they pulled out and they, they wanted to show solidarity with it and the pictures which I you know which I posted on uh, Instagram uh, showed uh, there's like Twyford Down was a big sort of eco thing at the time which is a uh, basically an extension to the M3 uh, close to where I was living uh, near Winchester at the yeah. time. And uh, uh, I think it was Nicky Wire who just said, like, you know, let's, let's, uh, uh, let's build a few bypasses through the shithole, basically, <laughs> you know, so there's two <laughs> fingers up to the eco crowd, basically. Uh, yeah. And actually that clip is, is, um, is on YouTube. I, I discovered it just yeah. today when I was, you know, trying to jog my memory a bit is uh, before slash and burn. And I thought, you know, it didn't exactly they did they were being provocative i think but uh, to me they they actually felt like a proper rock and roll band you know they had guitars and martial stacks and everything else so it meant something to me and i thought they were absolutely outstanding and it was a seminal set really so uh, you know that was a band who i really liked who was I sort of discovered uh, at, at that particular um, um festival yeah that's brilliant that's great to hear well you, you talk about sort of discovering the manics but were there any bands that you discovered and you just thought my goodness these are these are not very good <laughs> well um I, I did go and see uh so i remember on the main stage again looking at it i think the first band i saw was saint etienne who uh 
was a band I really liked. I, I thought, you know, in the early 90s, they kind of captured a sort of cool sort of London vibe in the 1960s, mm -hmm. 70s type feel. And, uh, but, you know, on stage, they were just totally anodyne, really. Uh, so, you know, it, Friday afternoon when everyone's turning up at, at Glastonbury, you know, I, I, it didn't do it for me. It's a bit of a disappointment because they're a band I really liked. Yeah, but I think uh, the absolute highlight uh, was Sunday and seeing Johnny Cash on the uh, Pyramid stage. I don't think the Sunday afternoon sort of legend thing uh, slot was actually a thing at the time. You know, I think that came later, really. And it's it just sort of ended up being overhyped, I, I suppose, because like, even then there wasn't some big intro. There was just some guy who said, hey, here's Johnny Cash and that's it. You know, uh, there was a lot of walking. Um, Again, looking at the photos, it looks a bit more kind of, uh, you know, uh, what's the word, basic, I suppose. And, you know, it's less sophisticated and less yeah. commercial uh, than it appears to be now. Um, and also a lot of lying around because it's incredibly tiring being there. And I, I remember at one point just feeling absolutely exhausted, actually a bit stressed because... I think being surrounded by all those people and all the noise and everything is, you know, you, you've got to kind of keep your head together, basically. And I remember one time just parking up at the Hare Krishna tent and lying there for about two hours, just listening to this <laughs> chanting and everything else. But they gave you a free vegetarian curry as well, which is really good. You know, just like sitting around uh, listening to drums and stuff. I remember sort of wandering around the healing field and they had all these, you know, sort of tarot readers and you know masseurs and all that kind of stuff and you know there was a feeling that you you sort of needed to detach yourself from from the hustle and bustle of the of the, of the main festival i know a lot of people go to glastonbury to get away from everything and then once you're there it's a bit of a sensory overload and you need to then get what get yourself away yeah, yeah, from you there as well yeah that's definitely the case yeah i, I do think that there's probably a, a 20 or an 18 year gap between yourself and me being in the exact same tent, doing the exact same thing. <laughs> just going, I'm just, I just need to sit yeah. down and I'm just going to go to the Krishna tent because they seem like quite nice people and they do like yeah. the curry. But that was great. That was definitely one of the highlights. So in terms of overriding memories, getting free curry from the Harry Krishnas and, and watching a Manic Street Preacher. Yeah, so um, I think, yeah, those, those were definitely at Johnny Cash as well. Um, I think you could just spend all your time wandering around and not even worry about the music and you'll still have a great time and uh i think even having this conversation is kind of uh, sort of prompted the the desire to go back and certainly when i watch it every year on uh on tv i think yeah oh yeah definitely want to go back uh well i'll tell you what get yourself there get yourself in the tv and <laughs> make it feel like it was back yeah definitely Great interview there with John. I just, yeah, one thing that is going to suit with me, go once in 94 to never have been since. Is it because it was too good? Or is it because he was like, I'm not doing that again? Still got a hangover. <laughs> yeah, he's not recovered yet 25 years later. <laughs> so, obviously, from seeing clips of the festival, seeing clips of television coverage of the festival, a lot has changed in the last 25 years. Not just the ticket price, <laughs> £59, what a bargain. Mm. I'm surprised how many people used to jump over the fence. But capacity as well. I mean, on paper, capacity was 85, 
thousand. Now they've just got their extension again this year, two hundred and thirty-five thousand. It's three times bigger on paper now. That's what puts me off. <laughs> yeah, it's it is one thing I noted when I was looking at um, clips was how much space there was. Yeah. yeah. Genuinely, yeah. you look because my memories of Glastonbury, I've been it's either four or five times now, and that's been over the past ten years. My memory is just how busy everywhere is. Like wherever you turn, there's just so many people. So looking at clips right now, there's there's so much space. <laughs> you can get a seat. Yeah. It, what I know you were mentioning, Charlotte, just the size of this. Oh, obviously, okay, obviously the pyramid stage isn't the pyramid no, stage. No, obviously we'll, we'll it burnt down that, that yeah. year. It we'll, burnt down just before the festival, so they got a temporary stage in. But yes. But the other stage, you were kind of shocked at the size of it. It's tiny. Mm. It's really, really small. It's just like a little dance tent. Yeah. Stage or the, actual, the actual stage is, yes, physically. Mm. But you look when it pans to the crowd, yeah. the crowd is still the same size. Yeah. But what also shocked me was how close the crowd are. There's so yes. much more space now between the crowd there and really the stage. Is. There and really not, is. And obviously that's for cameras, etc. But mm. it feels much closer. It feels much more DIY. It yeah. doesn't feel as organised or as big budget. No, it's really interesting. There's a great interview uh, with John Peel. He talks around the festival and how many times he's been and his love for the festival. But he seems fed up almost at this festival. And he does say within this interview, um, I'd say you should go on, and on YouTube and have a look for this. But he does say in this interview, he says, the festival is becoming too big now. This is, a, this is 25 years ago. What would the great man think now when it's three times the size yeah. what it was then? Mm. Because if he thinks it was too big then, and he's he's almost fed up with it, you can tell when he's talking around the festival then. Um, he went to the first one, 1970? Yeah, it was 1970, the first one. 71, I think. No, it's 1970. Mm. I'm pretty sure it was on the day. Yeah, because it's the 50th anniversary next year. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, yeah, it was 1970, the first one, and he said he'd not been to every one of them since, but he'd been to a lot of them. But you could tell his uh, his love of the festival had dwindled somewhat, dwindled somewhat. Yeah, he talks about how he, he enjoys the music, he doesn't like the camping, He doesn't. he's not really a fan of camping in general. It does make me chuckle how he talks about how he enjoys getting a load of tickets for it because he's got so many children. But otherwise, yeah, he's... He's not so much grumpy. I think he's just maybe a bit cynical, but rightly so. I think when you've seen it from the very start to what it became, maybe it's lost in his eyes, in his perspective, some of the magic. But then again, if you went that first year, like uh, like like John did in the interview, that's still going to be magical for you, and that's going to be your base level of what it is. That's why I've never gone to Glastonbury, because it's like the mother of all festivals. I mean, it's always got like the biggest lineups, the bands you want to see the most. And I mean... I think by the time I could afford to go to Glastonbury, I was always too aware that I was going to get so baked that I'd miss all the people that I've just paid for, so there's no <laughs> point. So it's like, I think the size of it is what it prohibits it, and, and what I'd say in the modern day is probably eroding its sort of like credibility, really. I mean, I, I think it's it's too big and it's too um, mass market these days for even me. It's, is it mass market or is it just trying to... It, is trying to appeal to everyone as well as trying to appeal to as many as possible. So yeah, you're trying to appeal to everyone, but also you're trying to be as niche as possible, as we've mentioned with these metal stages. Is it a hindrance or is it is it actually beneficial? I think it's both. Now, the thought of Glastonbury and how big it is, yes, I can see what you're saying, Dan, but when you go, you don't have to do all that big stuff. 
there's so many niches there, like you say, Paul, you're trying to uh, appeal to all those niches that you can go and get lost in a weekend there and not do all the things that you see on TV about it because it's just that type of festival. So I don't think, yes, it's massive, but, and potentially it's too big, but that shouldn't put people off, I don't think. That's the thing, mate. I can, I can get lost in a weekend in Hillsborough. <laughs> That's true. Really for, uh, for the pleasure of it. Like, Charlotte, you've not been, and you've admitted to me that you don't really like camping. Would you go to Glastonbury if you didn't have to camp? Uh, yeah, probably would go if I didn't have to camp, but I just think it's, it just looks too overwhelming. It's just like there's too much stuff going on, and I wouldn't even know where to start with it. Um, I don't know, like, for me, I'm quite happy to just sit at home and watch it on the BBC. <laughs> <laughs> in in um in John's interview, he makes a really uh, salient but ironic point. He talks about how you go to Glastonbury to sort of get away from everything, to have a bit of a a bit of a chill out. And he found that when he was there, it was actually a bit overloaded. It was a bit sensory mm-hmm. overloaded by the amount of stuff. And that again is in '94. Mm-hmm. There was that much happening that for him it was it's too much. It's a festivals now. generally, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there wasn't. Now, what is there? There's something like 50 or 60 festivals over the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly don't think that was a, a time. Not 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 to the same degree as well. Maybe local mm-hmm. bands and local small festivals, but. Well, again, it's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, you can go to if you want to have kind of middle class slightly psychedelic chilled out festival you go to latitude if you want to have a festival that's for metal you go to 2000 trees if you want to have a punk uh, festival you go to slam dunk glastonbury tries to to a certain extent to be everything for everyone but it has the size to do that and mm. yeah no two, no two people have the same festival experience there and i remember saying to mark to your brother when he came the first year that, oh, that i remember saying to him it's like an, it's like a triathlon. Don't think of this as a festival. Think of this as like an Ironman. You have to pace yourself. Definitely. You can't go in too hard. You can't get too drunk. You have to keep yourself steady. It is it is a battle. Glastonbury is a battle. And the best. It's my favourite place. I love it. It's an incredible place. Favourite battle. Yeah, it's the best thing too. But you're right. <coughs> you have to go in and be prepared to slog it out. <laughs> and I, you say it's a battle, and most of the time. Glastonbury wins. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. It, it probably depends on your bladder capacity. You know, I'm a bit of a two pint wonder on that. Like, I just don't think I'd get the best out of it. It's it's just the long how long it is. You set off on Tuesday evening. You're not home until the Monday evening. It's a week of just like insane. But it's brilliant. But yeah, I I just love the place. I love the festival. There's, there are so many festivals now. Unfortunately, there are many that are different, like you just mentioned before, Paul, but there are too many festivals now that are just carbon copies of each other, and they just share the same lineup, and essentially it's a festival going on tour, almost. It's like Lollapalooza yeah. in America. Yeah. But Glastonbury is not like that. Glastonbury is different. Glastonbury has something for everybody. Some people think that's a good thing, some people might not, but... I love it. What's your favourite drugs at Glastonbury? My favourite drugs at Glastonbury? I've never taken them, so I don't know. You've never taken alcohol at Glastonbury? Oh, I've taken alcohol. Coffee's a drug, Mark. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the festival has evolved, I think we uh, we can all agree. What else uh, 
have other people been getting in touch about with their uh, mad experiences from the festival, Paul? Well, you talk about the festival evolving. One thing that's definitely evolved is the security mm. and the fence that's around it. Um, Matt J. Nash, at Matt J. Nash on Twitter, says, uh, Night 4 was their first Glastonbury. On the bus in, uh, they had just the clothes that they were wearing. Um, they climbed over the fence and slept in the cinema tent from memory and got home with one shoe, lost the other down the front for blur, uh, and remember thinking that Oasis could uh, do quite well. <laughs> quite well. They'll go far. You know what, Noel? You'll, you'll go far. <laughs> Keep it up, lad. You can be a contender one day. Um, yeah, so the fact that people were just climbing over the fence, and there's so many stories of people climbing over the fence. Um, yeah, um, Greg McLaren also talks about how um, they went to see Oasis as well. They were the band that they wanted to see. Um, only about, uh, out of a group of ten that went to that festival with this chap, only two of them went to see Oasis. And they raved about them and had to get everyone to uh, go see them in the TNC next month in London. So they were ahead of the curve on that. So imagine that, going to Glastonbury and then like going to town and country the following month and everyone that you went with to Glastonbury hasn't seen them yet when they've mm. seen them at the almost proto-form. Um, yeah, it, it, it's surprising the amount of people that have really fond memories of Oasis. And also Robbie Williams being there, apparently. Hearts and Daisy Zero says, yes, they were there They were there in 94. Um, Johnny Cash and a massive sing-along to Boy Named Sue. Yes, uh, that is great on the footage. I yeah. love the Johnny Cash performance. I don't think we mentioned him enough yet. What a performance. But that boy named Sue, I think he ends on it. Yeah. It's brilliant. Uh, Hearts and Daisies goes on to talk about they were down the front for Blur. So that's a very good view. Uh, Rage Against the Machine, Oasis again, as we mentioned. And they say that this was the year they saw Robbie Williams in the greenfield sporting his new skateboarder hairdo. I'm not sure what a skateboarder hairdo is. I've seen is. pictures. There's it's, pictures, there's some quite famous pictures of... Um, Robbie Williams and Noel Gallagher before they had their big feud. Yeah. And it's at Glastonbury. It hasn't he got that bleach yeah, blonde hair? Like a, I thought it was '95 to be honest. I from that because it was quite right. famous. But if they might have misremembered it, or it could have been, I don't know. <laughs> but there are yeah, there are those pictures of them that I, were. I think this person's thinking about '95. Yeah, but, I do as well. But, Eight, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> oh, he's, <laughs> yeah. He's been skiing. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so a lot of people are just incredibly excited from the memories of watching Oasis and watching Blur. Mm. Um, and a lot of people went on their own. Uh, Steve, uh, Car, uh, Car Smile Steve, I don't know whether it's Car Smile or Car Simile. Apologies, Steve. Get in touch. Yeah, tell me how I mispronounce your name. Um, Steve, he went on his own, camped by and watched almost everything on the enemy stage uh, and actually transcribed a diary. So we'll put a link up of his diary. It's a, bit, it's a bit incoherent. <laughs> I've read it. Really? Steve, your diary's slightly incoherent, but... Your stories are great. <laughs> I'm like, I kind of understand why it is. Yeah. But yeah, uh, you know, that's one thing that I've always loved about Glastonbury, the fact that you can camp so close to the stages. Yes. Any more? Uh, one which I'd like to end on. Uh, this is from a user called RobotHead78. And this, these are some cool parents. Uh, it was my first year. Somehow I managed to convince my parents to let me go. Dad came and picked me up at midnight on Sunday for a GCSE exam back in Kent on the next morning. Um, I asked how they went on with their uh, exam, um, possibly because of the Glastonbury the, the weekend prior. 
They said that they got an E. A. <laughs> no, they got an E. Oh. E, e for exceptional. Yeah. In, yeah. What, in what subject, though? Uh, Music. I think, I think it was in English, they oh, said. Okay. Yeah. Um, the only one that they didn't get an A to C in, still, it was much more valuable to have been at Glastonbury. They changed everything more than just another exam. And they said that they're hoping to take the dad back to uh, Glastonbury next year. So what what was the name? Uh, that was Robot Head 78. Robot Head 78. Have your GCSEs featured on any other podcasts? I think it was worthwhile. <laughs> I, remember, um, I remember drinking some cider before my IT exam. Thinking, oh, computers what? will not catch on, will they? I'm going to waste the time on them when I'm, a, when I'm a grown up. What year was that? 96. <laughs> computers won't catch on. Yeah. Had the film Hackers come out at that point? <laughs> Well, thank you, as always, to everybody that has uh, got in touch. Um, if you want to continue to share your Glastonbury stories with you, with us, please do. Um, you Although we prefer them prior to this. Yeah. Yeah, you can still share them. Come on, come on. T- Paul, tell us how they can get in touch. Uh, so you can email us at doyouatrememberthefirsttime.com uh, or you can follow us and send us a message on Instagram or Twitter. Both those handles are rtftime. That's at RTF time. Um, or again, as I said in the previous episode, just shout out us in the street if you know what we look like. Yeah, if you're lucky, I'll tweet Paul's phone number. You can ring him up and tell him. <laughs> <laughs> lucky for that. You'd like that. Yeah. You'd like, you actually would like that. I know you'd entertain that phone call. <laughs> <laughs> what they can also do, if they wanted to, is send us a voicemail message through the Anchor app. Ooh, um, I'll put, technology, it's good. I'll post the, uh, I'll post the link to that. Yeah. Um, online at some point it's already on there if they go searching for yeah. it but yeah and please do do if you share uh, we'll tell you what we're going to be recording on next time if you do share your uh, your sound bites and your voice recordings of uh, either this episode or future or what you want to hear in the future episodes we'll uh, we'll start to feature them anyway coming up next we are going to move on to this episode's quiz show is going to an end but before we leave you we are going to do our now legendary quiz charlotte you're the quiz master for this episode tell us how can we play you can play by answering the questions that i'm going to ask you fantastic that sounds good (laughs) (laughs) pretty classic quiz there um right so we all ready we've got pens right right then question one what's the quiz on it's on Glastow Nightfall. Excellent. Specific. <laughs> Just checking. <laughs> right. Question one. How many stages were there at Glastow Nightfall? Ooh. I think there were less than there is now. But I don't know how many there are now. Um, Just a finger in the air. Yeah, finger in the air. Yeah, I'm just trying to fill some dead air. It's all right. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing well. Right. Next question, everybody ready? Yeah. Yeah? Okay, which famous late 80s, early 90s alliterative omnivores played the kids' field at Glastow 94? Alliterative? Eight. I've got an answer. It's completely wrong. (laughs) Uh, um, And did you say omnivores plural? Yeah, it's two of them. Okay. Oh, two of them. Chuckle Brothers. Last question. What track did Blur close their Sunday night set with? Oh, 
Can you hear their dogs purring? You can. Oh, <laughs> you can. I think I've got an answer for three. I'm still trying to think of I don't think I've got any of these right. Um, <laughs> honestly, I've, I've done all right. Well, I've only done the quiz once last time. I did all right then. So, the first question was how many stages were there at Glasgow Night 4? Dan? Stab in the dark, six. Thirteen. Seven. Can we have closest? Yes, the closest will win. It's 17. So, oh, wow. Rossing gets points. Woo! 17. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. Does that count just like somebody who sets up and just starts doing... Oh, there'll tonight. be stuff like... There's one called <laughs> yeah, the bandstand. I think it's called the bandstand nowadays. It's oh, tiny. It's, it's tiny. just like this corner here, and that's a stand. And like, it's just some bloke with a guitar singing like folk shanties on But a, hey, on I'd a... still love to play it. <laughs> <laughs> I would. Okay, question two was, which famous late 80s, early 90s alliterative omnivores played the kids' field at Glasgow Night 4? Paul, we'll start with you. Big bears. <laughs> I've gone for Barney the Purple Dinosaur. Oh, oh just, sometimes I just put Trevor and Simon off live and kicking. <laughs> Omnivores. Oh, I bet they were. I bet rumours about them. I bet they were. I like that he's alliterative and you've gone Trevor and Simon. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that's fine. That'll work. Is there any police telling someone's got that right? No. No. <laughs> it's Bodger and Badger. Oh, of course. <laughs> oh. Yeah, so moving on. The next question was, what track did Blur close their Sunday set with at Glasgow Night 4? I have gone for This Is A Low. I've gone for uh, To The End, but I think it was This Is A Low. I've gone for To The End as well. This Is A Low. Oh. I so nearly went for To The End, (laughs) and I changed my mind at the last minute. Oh, that sucks, because now you're going to get a condition. Two on the can't track. help it. It's the magazine. I'm going to say, it's too, luckily I'm the master next time, so I can't win it. Ugh. Sorry, guys. Can't win it next time. <laughs> anyway, so moving on. Thank you, Charlotte. Fantastic quiz. We're moving on to the Remember the First Time playlist. Now, this time we're doing it a little bit differently. We're not going to vote on a track because, as Paul rightly put it, it's a festival. There's so many songs to choose from. It's not quite as simple as uh, we have done it previously. So we're going to choose... One track each from our favourite performances at the Festival of Night 4. Then we're also going to choose a track each from the lineup, uh, a track by someone from this year's lineup in 2019. So let's go for 1994 first. Paul, who are you choosing? Uh, I'm choosing The Beastie Boys and I'm choosing Sabotage. Fantastic. Love it. Do you want me to tell you what my 2019 one is as well? No, we're going to come to them in a minute. Okay, because you were just looking at me as though I needed to nope, say something else. I forgot to move on. <laughs> Charlotte, <laughs> what are you choosing? I'm going to choose Chimes by Orbital. Excellent. Dan? I know you guys have done like enough of Blur on this podcast, but it's got to be girls and boys just for the haircut. Excellent. I like it. One thing we didn't point out before is watch that performance from 94. Alex James constantly stood there with his bass, cigarette right, in mouth. Yeah. He looks so cool. <laughs> That's why, I wanted, that's why I wanted to be in a band what, and why I wanted to smoke. Watching, watching, watching that back again, I'm really mourning the disappearance of long sleeve t shirts. Yes. <laughs> like, where have they gone? You don't, you don't yeah. find them anymore. No, no, no. You don't get Fred Perry long sleeves anymore, do you? I love them. Yeah. And anyway, yeah. anyway, I'm going to choose Manic Street Preachers Life Becoming a Landslide because I love that performance. So moving on to the 2019 lineup. Paul, what are you choosing? Uh, I am choosing. I'm going for The Cure, the uh, Sunday night festival closers, and I'm choosing Plain Song. I love Plain Song. Okay. Charlotte? 
I'm going to choose a very fun one, which is Juice by Lizzo. I love Juice. It's a right banger. It is. <laughs> I'm choosing Fontaine's DC um, and The Lots. I don't know if um, that, for me this it's the album of the year and they're not really blowing up yet. So I'm I hoping they're, them, they're, yeah. they're getting some good coverage yeah, after this because they're kind of hidden away in the lineup. But yeah, if you don't know Fontaine's DC, listen to Fontaine's DC. I thought you were going to say I hope they're going to get like blow up after listening to this podcast. Well, probably. Yeah. <laughs> no, I like that. They're, they're from London, Derry. Yeah, somewhere yeah. over there. Yeah, they, they sing with a really strong accent. It's really yeah. nice to hear the accent yeah. come through. Yeah, He's very Ian Curtis, that, that lad. He's, uh, mm. His delivery is he's, he's yeah. good, but no, anyway, yeah. Fantastic. I am going to choose, it's not a fun track, but it's a great track. Walking to the Sea from Johnny Marr's latest album. Love it. Great track. Grand. Okay, so that is pretty much it from episode three of Remember the First Time. Next time out, we are going to be reverting back to our album reviews and looking back at albums from 1994, and we're covering Manic Street Preachers' Holy Bible. We're actually going to do it a little bit before it was released, the 25th anniversary, but hey, that's just how our content calendar is looking. Just deal with it. <laughs> yeah. Deal with it on, like, don't listen, or, or, wait don't listen. It, or wait until it comes out and then listen. Yeah, then listen to it. So we will uh, be sure to be listening to it plenty in the coming weeks and we'll be talking about it uh, ready to give you our views holy bible in the meantime if you've got any Glastonbury stories get in touch with us if you've got anything you want to tell us about Manic Street Preachers holy bible get in touch with us Paul remind us again how they can do that uh, so once again you can email us that's do you at remember the first time dot com or you can go on to Instagram or Twitter and follow and message us on there that it's at RTF time Yep. You can also go on the website, rememberthefirsttime.com, sign up to be the first to hear about the release of new episodes. We'll make sure they come straight to your inbox, first of all. Uh, and don't forget, wherever you access your pods, to uh, subscribe and uh, make sure that you're listening to future episodes. Give us a nice review if you want as well. Yeah, you could give us a review. It'd be lovely to get a review. So, thank you very much for joining us this time, Dan. It's been great to have you uh, on the pod. Thanks for having me. Charlotte, goodbye for this episode. Goodbye. Paul, we'll see you later. I'm waving. <laughs> he is, he really is. He's like Mr Chips. <laughs> <laughs> and it's goodbye from me, Mark Russell. This has been Remember the First Time. We'll see you next time.